Matthew chapter 1. <clears throat> I have a friend of mine I was talking to a few, a few days ago. Yeah, I took him out for lunch. He's a pastor. And uh, he has some little kids. And we were uh, talking about his son. And he said uh, his son is about four or five years old. And he had one of those little kids adventure Bible kind of things. You know, it's kind of a comic book Bible. And he just loves to read. And so he had read through this comic book style Bible about five times. He's like, Mom, Dad, when am I going to get a regular Bible? And they finally had talked about it and said, okay, tell you what, you know, we're going to give him a regular Bible. So they went and got one, and uh, they gave it to him. Man, he was so excited. This is like 7 o'clock in the evening. And so he takes this Bible back to his room, and he just starts reading. And it comes about 9.30 or 10. It's time for him to go to bed. And his mom goes in to put him to sleep and say their prayers. And he said, she said, have you been reading your Bible? He said, yeah, I read all the way up from Genesis up to Numbers. And she said, really? He said, yeah, it's awesome. He said, but mom, what is sex? And she said, what? <laughs> he said, it's all over the Bible. It's everywhere. And so, you know, he's like seven or eight years old. I'm sorry, I said four or five. He's seven or eight. And so she gave the best definition that she could to a seven-year-old of where babies come from. And he said, whew, I'm glad we don't do that anymore. That was the Old Testament. <laughs> and so, and you know, we all have to have that conversation, don't we, about where babies come from. But there's one baby that's been born in this world that did not come from where babies come from. And so that's the name of our, the title of our sermon today. What child is this? But what I want to talk to you today is about the incredible relevance of the virgin birth. You know, we don't talk about this very much, but every Christmas in magazines and blogs and YouTube videos, people kind of start turning their attention to the virgin birth. And a lot of people that are skeptics of Christianity out there, they begin to attack this idea, this notion, and then something like this will get said inevitably. How could so many Americans believe something that's so unscientific? You know, there's one writer for the New York Times who said this, this recently, I think about a year ago, the faith in the virgin birth reflects the way American Christianity is becoming less intellectual and more mystical over time. And here's this idea out there floating around that the virgin birth was something that the apostles kind of created to make the birth of Jesus, you know, more theatrical and just more powerful, more powerful story. And you might remember back in 2003, Dan Brown had this book, The Da Vinci Code. And the whole premise behind this this book was that Jesus was just a naturally born, natural man, just like anybody else, just a profoundly good moral teacher along the lines of, you know, Buddha or Muhammad or someone like that, but that he gained so much popularity and there was so much political power in his popularity that the, he, was, he was a threat to the Roman government, and so they had him executed. But his disciples, his followers, didn't want to lose that political power, so they kind of concocted this idea that this great moral teacher was born of a virgin. He had a mystical supernatural birth. And then all the records of his natural birth, his natural origins were destroyed in this grand conspiracy of the church. But there were little clues all throughout Rome and all throughout Europe. And he managed to find those clues in that book, The Da Vinci Code. That book became a bestseller. It was a blockbuster movie with Tom Hanks, etc., etc. But I want you to think about this. Is the virgin birth, is it a an ancient political conspiracy? Is it theatrics? Is it a legend? Is it a myth? Is it just a tall tale? Is this one doctrine really that important? You have a lot of people saying that today. You know, yeah, you know, it's, 
You know, I understand some people used to believe that, but is it really important to the story of Jesus? Does it really matter whether or not Jesus was born of a virgin? I want you to see this quote, Dr. John Walver. The incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ is the central fact of Christianity, and upon it the whole superstructure of Christian theology depends. All right, so I want to give you five reasons why it's important to believe in the virgin birth. The first one is this. The birth of Jesus tells you that your scriptures are validated. All right, hundreds of years before Jesus was born, there are over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament who recorded all sorts of future events that were going to take place surrounding the Messiah, the anointed one who was to come. And these prophecies point to the exact manner, location, and circumstances of the Messiah's birth. And there's only been one person who's fulfilled even a few of those uh, prophecies, but Jesus of Nazareth fulfilled all 300. All right, Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Look what, look what Matthew says. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. That is such a profound statement. Before they came together, somehow she was with child. How? Through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man, did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And she will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people From their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet Isaiah the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. You see, approximately 700 years prior to his birth, Isaiah foretold of their Messiah being born of a virgin. And if Jesus was not miraculously born of a virgin, as Matthew says he was, that means the Bible is wrong in this spot right here. If the Bible is the Word of God, it must be truth that is unmixed, so to speak, with error. Each detail including the scientific ones like this. It's a biological uh, statement. Those things have to be true. They must be accurate. But the incredible reality is that the Bible is correct here. It's absolutely true. See, a miraculous birth is the only way to account for Jesus' miraculous life, His miraculous uh, resurrection, and then his miraculous ascension. This means that you can absolutely trust your Bible that it is true and that it is the Word of God. It is the truth. And I want you to think about that for a moment. It can be trusted in all matters of life. If your Bible can be trusted here in this place with something so profound, that means you can trust your Bible no matter what you're needing. No matter where you might be in life, no matter what your questions might be, this is the place to go. Don't need to go to watch YouTube videos, Google for answers, things like that. Search the Word of God because the Word of God is the truth. You know, I was looking at several surveys this past week 
And some were very interesting, you know, about, you know, what, what does, you know, what do Americans believe about the virgin birth? And some of them were pretty encouraging, but one was very, very sad to me. First of all, 80 or 90% of the American public Christians, uh, American Christians surveyed, believe that Jesus Christ was born of a virgin. You know, it's like nine out of 10 American Christians. Remarkable. I think it's fantastic. Listen to this. Something like, depending on which survey you read, 50 to 60% of Americans who are not Christians claim to believe that Jesus was born of a virgin. I find that remarkable. But here's the one that was sad to me. 44% of the students in America's Protestant seminaries believe in the virgin birth. In other words, more than half do not the people who are getting ready to go into our pulpit. So what this says is that in America, the man on the street believes in the virgin birth more than the man in the pulpit. And we wonder why our nation is struggling. You see, it's an important principle here as it relates to the Bible. You don't benefit from the Bible unless you believe the Bible. And if you find a place in the Bible that you don't believe, then how can you benefit from anything else that the Bible has to say? We're not free like Thomas Jefferson to like, you know, pick and choose which parts of the Bible we're going to believe and not believe. I don't know if you've ever heard of the Jefferson Bible, but the parts he didn't think were true, he took a razor blade and cut them out. You know, we're not free to do that. It's, it's all or it's nothing. You know, ladies, a lot of you, I should not, I'm sorry, men and women. I know men cook now. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, we, we're all, we're all going to have some great Christmas recipes, and we're going we're gonna to pull out these recipes. But, you know, if you have a recipe that's been handed down your family generation after generation, none of us are going to take that recipe and say, you know what, instead of a cup of sugar, I'm going to put in half a cup. You know, we don't do that. We can't do that also with the words of God. Charles Stanley said it this way. He said, people who deny the truth of the virgin birth also reject other foundational truths in the Bible. Some find it more comfortable to select the parts of Scripture that suit their lifestyle or opinions rather than apply the entire word of God to their life. And when we limit which passages we will consider true, our susceptibility to Satan's lies grows. Yeah. You know, the other thing we have to keep in mind is that this birth of Jesus tells you that his life was supernatural. His origin was supernatural. And that's so, so key. Here's a great, great theologian in the early 20th century, Dr. William Evans. Listen to this. He had memorized the entire Bible in the, new, in the King James Version. All right? He was head of the Bible department at Moody Bible Institute up in Chicago. And he devoted his life to teaching God's Word to seminary students, etc., etc. And all throughout the early 1900s, he traveled all around America and Canada leading Bible conferences. He was a tremendous communicator, tremendous speaker. Well, as he got, and he authored more than 50 books. Well, toward the end of his life, in the 1940s, uh, this idea, this, you know, this theological liberalism, that this idea that the virgin birth wasn't necessarily real was really beginning to creep into America's churches and seminaries. And so he, he uh, got a chance to preach at the first Presbyterian church in Hollywood, California. And this idea was just beginning. And everyone in the audience that day was shocked when he raised his Bible and he opened up to Matthew chapter 1 and Luke chapter 1, the accounts of the virgin birth of Jesus. And he said, you know what? He said, 
we probably shouldn't even believe this anymore. And he ripped that page out of his Bible and he threw it onto the ground. Everybody was just shocked. All right. And I'm not going to do that for you today because I like my Bible. I really, this means a lot to me. Okay. But he said, you know, if there's no virgin birth, he said, well, then he said, then there's no resurrection. And he tore that page, all the resurrection page, he tore them out and he scattered them. And you know, if there were no resurrection, that means that <clears throat> there were no miracles. Okay. And he's, he starts tearing out all the pages and he said, you know what? And by the way, if there's no virgin birth, there's no miracles, there's no resurrection. I, he turned to the Sermon on the Mount. He said, I can't believe that either because if a divine Christ didn't preach that, I can't believe it. And there were pages all over the front of the church, okay? No issue is more important to understanding who Jesus is than this idea of the virgin birth. Everything about Christianity hinges on the idea that Jesus of Nazareth had a supernatural origin. Do me a favor, turn to Luke chapter 1 now. Turn to the right to Luke chapter 1 and verse 26. Luke chapter 1 verse 26. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid. Mary, you have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. And here's the grand question. Look at verse 34. How will this be? Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin. And the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Notice the beauty and dignity of the process of Jesus' conception. The Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. You see, there's really no parallel anywhere in ancient literature for another origin story quite like it. For example, Hercules. You know, he, he, he came about when Zeus saw a beautiful woman. He lusted for her. And so he disguised himself as the woman's husband and went in and slept with her. All right. Uh, the Buddha, you know, his mother, uh, you know, she had been married for 20 years and she was, you know, she was royalty. She was a very, very wealthy, powerful woman. And, and she said that the night that uh, her son, the Siddhartha, when he was conceived, she had a dream of a white elephant leaving the cosmos, so to speak, and coming in and entering her womb. Things like that. But the virgin birth is the only explanation of how Jesus of Nazareth could be both God and man, have a supernatural origin. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, another prophecy, by the way. For to us a child is born, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Look at those first three names. Wonderful Counselor. You know, that wonder is indicative of a miracle. And counselor is a word that's often used in place of king 
in your Old Testament, a miraculous king and mighty God. This word that Isaiah uses here never refers to a man or a king, but only God himself. And everlasting father means literally father of eternity from beyond all time. These three names allow no possibility for that baby born in Bethlehem to be anyone else other than God made human flesh. And so this child that is conceived in Luke chapter 1 is the same God who created everything in Genesis chapter 1. And you might say, but Les, I don't understand that. I'd be concerned if you said you did. All right, nobody does. All right, no one understands the national debt, $31 trillion, but we believe it's there, you know, by faith. We believe it's there. And we don't have to see something to know that it's true and believe that it's true by faith. J.I. Packer, another great theologian, said this, the babyhood of the Son of God was a reality, and the more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic, and as is this truth of the incarnation. Number three, the reason you have to believe in the virgin birth is that it is the, the proof that Jesus' life was sinless. Think about this. If Jesus was not conceived supernaturally, like the angel Gabriel told Mary, then he would have to have been conceived naturally. And if he was not born of a virgin, this means that he would have had a human father, whoever it was. You know, like Dan Brown said it was probably a Roman soldier that you know, Mary had a traumatic experience with, or who knows what it might have been, or Mary and Joseph were trying to hide the fact that they just you know, got carried away during their engagement. But if Jesus had a human father, then he would have inherited a, inherited a sinful nature like the rest of us. Romans chapter 5, verse 12, Paul said it so clearly. Sin came into the world through one man, and his sin brought death with it. As a result, death has spread to the whole human race because everyone has sinned. See, what happened is that the virgin birth completely flipped, turned upside down the state of affairs in both the spiritual realm and the physical, or you could say biological realm. And the virgin birth allowed the eternal God to become a paragon, a perfect man. Christ was fully man. This means that he was able to die just like you and me. He got tired. He would sweat when he worked. All right. Uh, Jesus might have had bad breath sometimes. We don't know. But he was fully God. And so there was this capacity to do something that no human being had ever been able to do, which was to live a life free from the domination of sin. Utterly unlike you and me. First John chapter 3, John said this, All who have this hope in Christ keep themselves pure just as Christ is pure. And the person who, sin, who sins breaks God's law. And you know that Christ came to take away our sins and that there is no sin in Him. You see, if Jesus were born of two human parents, He would have been born in the grip of Adam's sin. And if Jesus had a human father, then his sinless nature would just be a cruel lie. And if Jesus did not have a sinless nature, then our salvation would rest on a lie. 
And how much, how much uh, more cruel could that possibly be? You see, this idea of the virgin birth, the gospel stands or falls on the virgin birth. Which brings us to the next point. This birth tells you that your Savior is sufficient. On May the 24th, a heavily armed gunman in Uvalde, Texas, went into an elementary school. 376 law enforcement officers descended on the school. There's more people than defended the Alamo. One hour and 14 minutes went by from the time police entered the school to when the shooter was killed. 19 teachers, I'm sorry, 19 children and two teachers lost their lives. You know, the community members and the parents were begging these law enforcement officers to go into the school. But because of the confusion, no one would. Back in July, a Texas House committee released the most exhaustive report and account of the shooting. And the committee said they failed to prioritize saving the lives of innocent victims over their own safety. Now, this is what makes an incident like Uvalde so hard, is the innocence of the victims. Let's suppose for a moment that a gunman broke into Guantanamo Bay, and the guards kind of just sat there, and they were kind of, there was some confusion about who was in control, who was in command, and this, man, this madman went through Guantanamo Bay and killed 19 people. What would most of us say? Hey, these were the masterminds of 9-11, you know? You reap what you sow, right? Something like that. I don't know if it ever occurred to you, but God did not have to save you or me. It was completely within his prerogative in justice to allow you and me to suffer the punishment that our sins deserve. To be born, to go through life in a natural state without the Holy Spirit in us, within us, and around us, you know, working and moving, and then just simply go into our eternity without Him. God could have chosen to give us the same fate that the angels who rebelled against Him. What befell them? Second Peter chapter 2, Peter said this, For God did not spare the angels that sinned, but cast them into hell, delivering to be kept there in pits of gloom till their judgment and doom. You see, a righteous God cannot leave rebellion unpunished. He can't just sweep our offenses, our defiance under the rug. But once God, in His love, decided to save some human beings, there was only one way. He had given a law and said, if you can keep my law and perfect yourself, improve yourself, then I could let you into heaven. But nobody could do that because it's weakened by the flesh. So what He had to do is He had to remove man from the salvation equation. Romans chapter 8, verse 3, God has done what the law could not do. Sending His own Son in the guise of sinful flesh as an offering for sin, God condemns sin, depriving it of its power. See, the only way was for a substitute to take the punishment that we rebels deserved. And this substitute could not be any, uh, any man or woman a really good person, even the very best of us. If someone offered to die for our sins who had only one sin, 
just one sin. They had stolen a piece of bubble gum when they were five years old from Kmart or something like that. That came to me because I did that. <laughs> I don't, it was like a, one of those things where it just kind of comes into your mind. Yeah, I, 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 I'm, I'm, yeah I'm coming clean. Okay, I'm coming clean. <laughs> if they had even one sin, then they would have to pay the penalty for their own sin. And so someone with even one sin could not pay the penalty for their sin and yours and mine. It just couldn't happen. Our only hope, our only hope, someone who is absolutely pure, sinless, to take the penalty for us. In order for our sins to be atoned for, mankind had to have a sinless substitute. And the only way for a sinless substitute to appear on this planet would be for there to be a miraculous birth, for it to be born of a virgin. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24 says, Christ personally carried our sins in His body on the cross, willingly offering Himself on it as on an altar of sacrifice, for by His wounds you have been healed. You see, if there were a house report in heaven, the house report in heaven would say something like this. Jesus prioritized saving the souls of guilty rebels over his own safety. This is what theologians call the substitutionary atonement. I love the way Mark Dever explains it. He says it this way. When atonement is talked about, it means that a price has been paid for our sins that has the result of bringing sinful us together with holy God. We have been reconciled to God. So we understand that Christ made an atonement. He paid a price, His own life, that God accepted for us on our behalf. And so now we are brought back to God. This is the staggering reality of the virgin birth. Is that a sinless man found, suddenly was found upon this earth and that He substituted Himself for you and for me. And it was His enormous compassion and His epic courage that made this kind of sacrifice possible that atoned for your sin. Jerry Bridges said this, he said, Jesus exhausted the wrath of God. It was not merely deflected or prevented from reaching us, it was exhausted. Jesus bore the full unmitigated brunt of it, and God's wrath against sin was unleashed in all of its fury, on His beloved Son, He held nothing back. This means that if you put your faith in Jesus today, that there's no wrath left for you. And that reality is enormously important to your heart and your mind today. You see, bad things happen to us. Painful things come into our lives. And when they do, I don't know if you're like me, but almost inevitably, here's where my mind goes. What did I do to deserve this? I don't know if you do that. I wish I didn't, but I do. And I want you to think about that for a moment. Substitutionary atonement. All of God's wrath poured out on His sinless beloved Son for you and for me. And now all that enters the heart of the Father when He thinks about you, when He thinks about me, is just this deep and abiding love. And this, this holy resolve that God has as your eternal Father to not leave you in the depths of sin 
and in bondage to sin, but to begin to move you to a new plane of living, to begin to mature you and grow you as any father would who loves their children. That's why Hebrews 12, 6 and 7 says, the Lord disciplines those He loves. So hold on through your sufferings because they are like a father's discipline. And the day will come. We're going to talk about this on Saturday night. The day will come when it will all unfold before us and there will be a kingdom to come that we cannot begin to imagine. And that baby born in Bethlehem will sit on that throne. The government will be on his shoulders and we will have been prepared for that place. And there will be a glorious reunion with all the people we love who've gone before us. We will be there together. You see, Jesus is sufficient. He is sufficient for your salvation. And is there anything that He would not be sufficient for? And when life unloads on you, and you say, Lord, I just don't have the strength, always remember that Jesus is sufficient for all things. All things. And the last thing is this. That this birth, this virgin birth tells you that your salvation is secure. I read, a, I read a book a few years ago. I highly recommend it. It's called The Ragamuffin Gospel by Brennan Manning. And the best part of this great book is this incredible story. The mayor of New York City during the Great Depression was a man named Fiorello LaGuardia. The Guardia Airport's named after him. New Yorkers adored him. He was very colorful. He was a lot of fun. Probably the most popular mayor in New York City history. He was known for going to the orphanages in New York City and taking entire orphanages to baseball games. You know, things like that. Well, there was one bitterly cold night near Christmas in 1935 at the height of the Depression. And he went to night court in the poorest ward of the city. And he told the judge, hey, judge, I'm going to give you the night off. It's almost Christmas. You take the night off. I'll fill in for you as judge. Well, the next case that came up with this very poorly dressed old woman, and she was charged with stealing a loaf of bread. He asked her, you know, explain what happened. She said, sir, I did it. My daughter's husband has deserted her. My daughter is sick. My two grandchildren were starving. We have no money. And so I stole a loaf of bread to give my grandchildren something to eat. And so then he asked the shopkeeper from whom the bread was stolen, do you want to press charge? He said, yes, sir, I do. It's a bad neighborhood. We have to teach those people a lesson. They need to obey the law. Mayor LaGuardia, they said, just kind of sighed. And he turned to the woman and he said, you know, by law, I have to punish you. And he said, the fine is $10, which I know you don't have, or 10 days in jail. And so he said, bailiff, come here. He reached into his pocket and he reached and he got out a $10 bill and he gave it to the bailiff, but he didn't stop there. And he said, I now fine everyone in this courtroom 50 cents each for living in a town where a person has to steal bread in order for their grandchildren to eat. He said, bailiff, go around and collect the fines and give them to the defendant. <laughs> he fined everybody. <laughs> and so even the lawyers, even the lawyers had to give over 50 cents, which is really hard for lawyers, okay? And... Uh, <laughs> So yeah, uh, lawbreakers, uh, policemen, lawyers, even the grocery store owner had to give 50 cents. They all got fined 50 cents. And they all gave the mayor a standing ovation when that was done. And then that old lady who had stolen a loaf of bread walked out of the courthouse with $47.50 
bewildered. By what? Grace. Grace. You see, mercy is when you're not given what you do deserve. He could have just given her mercy and said, you know what? I'm not going to charge you. What did he do? He gave her grace. I'm not going to give you what you deserve. And, and I want to gift you what you never thought you would ever receive. She walked out of with almost $50. You know, the grace of God, it is bewildering. Why would God Almighty show kindness to sinners? But you see, in His colossal grace, God initiated the supernatural, miraculous life of Jesus. And then Jesus' life initiates our spiritual life. Ephesians chapter 2 says this, God, with the unfathomable riches of His love and mercy, focused on us, united us with Christ, and infused our lifeless souls with life. And even though we were buried under mountains of sin, and saved us by His grace. You see, the birth of Jesus was a miraculous, supernatural birth made possible by the power of God. And it was a spiritual birth. Remember, the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary. And a new life came to being within her. And when you believe on Jesus, you say, Lord Jesus, I cannot do it on my own anymore. I've failed. I give up. I'm a sinner. I need you so badly. When you do that, you accept him. There is a birth that takes place. It's not a physical birth made possible by the genetic contribution of two parents, but a new life is conceived. It is a spiritual life. It's on a different metaphysical plane than just our natural biological life. John chapter 1 says this, The one who is the true light, who gives light to everyone, came into the very world he created. To all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become the children of God. They are reborn not with a physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. I want you to think about this as we leave today. Do you see yourself in that birth, in this passage? Your salvation is a supernatural conception, a new life, just like the life that Mary found within her. And it's only made possible by the passion and the power and the plan of an almighty God. And if your salvation is a miracle, miraculous birth, how could so great a salvation ever be undone? By what process could such a thing ever cease to be? Death could not take him because his life was of such a quality and such a kind that it could never cease to be. And this is why if you put your faith and your trust in Jesus, your salvation is secure because that life that was put into you is the life of Jesus. And it is inexhaustible. It is inextinguishable. It is miraculous. The life that came to be that first Christmas is the life that has been given to you if you know Jesus as your Savior, is the life that will be given to you when you ask Jesus to be your Savior. And your salvation is a Christmas miracle. A Christmas miracle. And so, yes, the virgin birth is important. It is so important. Far beyond our comprehension. And the message is this. 
God has made Himself known. God has made Himself known. And that means that you and I will never have to face life alone ever again. Let's just bow our heads together for a moment this morning. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, I want to ask you just to think for a moment with me about some of those things that we just discussed because it is so critically important for you and for me to really pause during this time of year and reflect upon the fact that God has entered into our world on a saving mission. On a saving mission. He's come to save you. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior today, today would be the day you would say, Lord Jesus, I see it. I see it. Yes, you were born supernaturally, conceived miraculously, and it was all done for the salvation of my eternal soul, for me to have a new birth, and for you to go to the Lord today and just say, Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I need to be saved. Would you please forgive me? I put my faith and my trust into that very life that you have, Jesus. That's the life that I want, that eternal life. You could ask that of him today and you would be eternally saved. For it's by grace that you're saved through faith. It is not of yourselves. So yeah, it's the salvation component. But then there's also, once you are saved, for those of us who do know the Lord Jesus... There's the strength that comes from knowing that you're not alone, that that life is within you and that within you there is this life of Jesus and he wants to express that life in you and through you. And I don't know what you might be facing today, but you just might go before the Lord today and say, Lord, I just need, I need your life. I need your life. I just, I kind of feel dead inside. And Lord, I just need your life to be new within me. And I just want you to know that the Lord is sufficient. He is sufficient today. And so I just want to ask you to pause for a moment. Go before the Lord today. It might be about your salvation. It might be about your strength. But go before the Lord today. Thank Him for the Christmas miracle you've been given. I'll be quiet for a couple of moments. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I just love you so much. And Lord Jesus, this is so profound. I just feel so inadequate to communicate these things. They're so powerful, so incredible. And Lord, I just pray for the person here today, Father, who is particularly low. Lord, I know that during this holiday season, it's so, so hard for so many. And so, Lord, I just pray today that you would just give a new understanding, Lord, just a new depth of perception perhaps, Father, to someone here who's feeling who's just feeling low, Father, that, that they could see the, the power, the glory, and the beauty of Christmas. The virgin birth. The supernatural conception, Lord, that you brought about. And Lord, how it affects their life today. And Lord, I pray that for all of us here today, Father. Give us a new depth of perception, Father, to see you in ways we never have before. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.